Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. This morning, um, and you know, I could say this almost every Sunday during the Sermon on the Mount, each week is a kind of intense message because Jesus did not preach on the easy stuff. He didn't preach on casual, superficial things. When he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he really went for the jugular vein, the finishing move, if you know what I mean, if you play video games. I mean, he really wanted people to understand what God wants from humanity. And today, the title of the message is simply Authentic. Uh, I don't know if we can pull up that slide. There we are. Authentic. It's one of the things God wants. And authentic is the title I chose because it's the opposite of this other thing he addresses, which is hypocrisy. How many people love a hypocrite? Just you're so happy when you run into a hypocrite. Anyone? How many of you consider it a great compliment if someone said, you know, you are actually the biggest hypocrite I know? You're like, well, thank you. I, wow. How many people did I beat out for that great? No one likes a hypocrite. Hypocrisy is ugly in anyone, and every one of us at some point in our lives has behaved as a hypocrite, haven't we? I don't think there's a person in this room who is not guilty of hypocrisy at some point in some period of our lives. And so we want to look at how to avoid, to do battle against hypocrisy and how to align our lives with a more beautiful picture of who God calls us to be. We're going to draw from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. As you can clearly see, there are multiple important themes going on in this passage. And truly, this could have been turned into three sermons. One on hypocrisy, another on giving to the needy, and another on the theology of rewards in, in, in heaven. But I had to land on something. So I'm going to focus on the hypocrisy part of this passage. And I think it's important because it's the part that I think most people are most passionate about, most convicted about, and universally agree. Hypocrisy kills Christian witness. Authenticity is beautiful and universally attractive. If you pause and think about it, every one of us, and maybe if you're getting a little along in years and you feel like, wow, life is dwindling down. It's so short. It was over before I knew it. Let me give you a little encouragement. Every one of us gets to live two whole lives, two full lifetimes. Because at every moment, we are living two simultaneous lives. There is an inner life and there is an outer life. And each of us is wired in such a way 
that we are likely to focus on one or the other of those lives. Now, it's not a perfect categorization, but by and large, extroverts will tend to focus on the outer life. What are we going to do this weekend? What's happening? Who's going to be there? What did you just say? Extroverts tend to focus on the, what's happening outside. What's my resume say? What, how am I looking today? How am I dressed? Whereas introverts tend to focus on the inner life. How do I feel? What are they thinking about me? What's going on? Why is it so noisy? So as you can see, at every moment, we are all living more than one life. And if you think about it, there are multiple ways to frame that simultaneous inward and outer life. I like to frame it in terms of this, of how we're oriented in terms of, is your inner and your outer life moving towards God or away from God? Because I think those are two of the most important directions we can think about where our life is headed. At every moment, whether we're aware of it or not, our inner life and our outer life is moving towards or away from God. There are lots of other places it can be moving towards yourself, an idol, a career, whatever it may be. But you are either moving towards God or away from God in your inner and your outer life. And so there are three situations, three relationships along the spectrum. This is a scientist to me. It's going to look like a um, a little little, uh, diagram here. But there's a situation in which both your inner life and your outer life are moving away from God. And this is, by the way, we're addressing Christians here, okay? We're not talking about humanity in general. Jesus is preaching to his disciples, and so I'm going to restrict our comments to that. If you are, if you consider yourself a born-again Christian, it's still possible that you find your life in this situation, that both your inner and your outer life are moving away from God. You're despondent. You feel a little bitter at times, You're frustrated. It seems as if inside, in your heart of hearts, there's a deadness or an emptiness there, and you're not faking it. You're not fighting it. And outside, your countenance, your actions, your choices, you may have stopped coming regularly to a small group or to church. You may have stopped giving. You may have completely taken Moody or Caleb off of your your presets on your radio. I mean, whatever the case may be, you may always wear a dour expression, be angry or annoyed constantly. You are not trying to give any impression other than what's really going on. And so that is a situation that's often the case. And if this is where you are, here's what I'm going to ask of you. Please reach out and talk to someone. Because even though you're defiant, even though you're angry and broken about it, I also know that if you're a Christian and this is where you are, deep down inside, you're not happy about this state of affairs. That if really you had your way, God would make you feel alive again. That you would go back to the first love you once knew when God was real. When you wanted him and you knew he wanted you. And that's where you want to be. And if this is where you are, I'm begging you, don't fight it or deny it, reach out to someone, a small group leader, a trusted friend, one of the pastors in the church, a deacon, an elder, anybody, and just say, I need help. I don't want to stay here. We would call the situation, for lack of a better word, lapsed. A person who once walked 
in spiritual aliveness, but finds that in their heart and in their life, everything's moving away from God. Here's another situation. This is where the inner life, uh, I'm sorry, I flipped around. <laughs> okay, here, no, that's, that's right, actually. The inner life is moving towards God, and the outer life is moving towards God. That's a good situation. We call that integration. We call it authentic because both what is happening in me and what is happening outside in my choices, my words, my demeanor, it all agrees. It's not an act. It's real. And the truth is, when something is authentic, you just you know it, don't you? Like, we all know that when you go to the timeshare meeting and, so, and the guy says to you, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're here. I'm really glad you made it out. Are you enjoying your trip? You're going to love this. And you're like, oh my gosh, tone it down, buddy. I'm not buying it. (laughs) And you feel a little like he's not that happy to meet you. He's going to forget you in the next 30 minutes when the next group comes through. But in that moment, he's projecting a very palpable sense of happiness to meet you. And right away, we feel the dissonance inside, don't we? That what, you, what you're showing me on the outside isn't really matching what's going on in the inside. No one can be that happy to meet me for the first time. I'm sorry. And I think when we meet somebody who is authentic, especially with, with respect to God, when they talk about God with, with a heart that is glowing, that is shaking with emotion, and you sense that that comes from a very deep inner place, it is beautiful. It's attractive. It draws us towards that person. There's not a person alive who doesn't find authenticity attractive. Especially when the authenticity is towards a beautiful direction. Because there's ways to be very authentic in an ugly way. <laughs> Lapsed is authentic in a way, right? <laughs> but we're talking about a Godward authenticity that is universally attractive. And then finally, there's a situation in which the inner life is just raging away from God. You feel empty. You feel dead. You don't really draw any peace or joy from your relationship with God. But in the outer life, your language, your participation, your actions and words all speak to somebody who's doing very well spiritually. Inwardly, you're dying, but outwardly, everyone would think you're a monk. We call that hypocrisy. Because it is a, an illusion, a smokescreen that masks our view and the world's view from what's really happening inside. It's upsetting when we meet a person whose inner and outer lives don't match. It's upsetting when somebody says, you need to stop smoking. It's going to kill you. And you're like, I wish someone, anyone other than you would be lecturing me about smoking. It's upsetting when your boss tells you to work harder and he goes home an hour before everyone else. Hypocrisy is universally ugly and upsetting. It's unattractive. It makes us want to avoid not only that person, but everything they stand for. That's why when we meet a hypocrite in the church, we don't just walk away from that person. We walk away from the church. And when you walk away from enough churches, lowercase c, you decide to walk away from the church altogether. Hypocrisy is ugly. And hypocrisy, probably more than anything else, 
has damaged the Christian witness in the world. Wouldn't you agree that one of the reasons that we're uneasy about outing ourselves as Christians, we, we talk about the LGBT community having a coming out, I think Christians also have to have a coming out. And today, it may be harder to come out as a Christian than to come out as gay. Because the world will not applaud you for coming out as a Christian. The, and part of it is because we have shot ourselves in the foot. Hypocrisy has decimated, has just decimated our witness in the world. And part of the reason we're uncomfortable outing ourselves as Christians is because of all the historic failings of the church and of individual Christians to really portray in our lives the gospel which we proclaim with our mouths. It's clear that hypocrisy is damaging our witness as a church. But where do we begin with the rooting out of hypocrisy? Here's one thing I've learned, and you probably agree with me. It's much easier to spot the hypocrisy in other people. <laughs> I mean, you could do it all day long. You're like, oh my God, there, uh-huh, mm-hmm. Somebody once asked the preacher, is, is it, isn't the church full of hypocrites? And the pastor said, well, there's always room for one more. It's not full, yeah. I mean, hypocrisy is everywhere, and it's really easy to spot it in other people. And we probably even say about a hypocrite, why can't they just see how ridiculous they sound, how contradictory their lives are? Why can't they see that they're living a lie? And we probably say that about others, but gasp, what if others are saying it about us? Because I think the last person to see our own hypocrisy is us. It's very easy to see hypocrisy in others. It's really hard to see it in ourselves. But in fact, that is the best place to begin if we want to do away with hypocrisy in the church. Don't start with how everyone else is screwing up. Start with you. Look into your own heart and say, God, is there anything awry in me? Something where my inner and my outer life don't match. That's why Jesus begins the sermon by saying, be careful. That's a very powerful Greek word. It's not just, you know, you should think about that once in a while. It's a dire warning, sort of like, beware of dog. I watched a a, a burglar being interviewed on a, a TV news show, and he said, when you see a beware of dog sign on a fence, whether there's a dog or not, there's not a burglar in his right mind who would touch that house. Because the last thing you want is a Rottweiler or a pit bull gnawing on your leg. It's just not worth the trouble. That beware sends a very strong message. Watch out. Be vigilant. Don't take this for granted. And that's what Jesus says is, look, be aware of what I'm about to say next. Because it is so easy for this to happen to my followers. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is hypocrisy is not something that other people do. It's something every one of us is constantly in danger of because the desire to look like we're doing better than we are is so strong in human nature. My my dad had a medical practice in the community that was economically very depressed. Everybody there was on public assistance of one form or another. But when I went to visit him at his clinic, I would see Cadillacs lined up in the parking lot. That was back in the day before Lexus and Infiniti and all all these other cars. Cadillac was like the car. 
And I would be like, Dad, I'm confused. All your patients are in public assistance, but they have Cadillacs. He goes, so I, I, he, I don't understand it either. I asked his office manager who happened to live in the neighborhood. She goes, oh, well, here's the, the little secret is they have a Cadillac, but they only have one gallon of gas in it at any given time. And, and I understood that. Even as a teenager, I understood that I would rather have a Cadillac I can't drive more than five blocks than a junker I could drive around the country. That it's important to me, I think it's important to all of us, to look like we're doing better than we actually are. That instinct, that need to appear better than we are, is so strong in human nature. That's why when someone asks you, how are you doing? You don't even think the lizard brain just goes, oh, I'm doing pretty good. No, you're not. And maybe you're like, well, they don't really want to know the answer. Well, but the thing is, that's independent of them. Our gut-level reaction is just to say, yeah, I'm doing fine, because we want to project okayness, even if what we're, hap- what we're experiencing inside is a kind of death. So Jesus says to us, be careful when you're tempted to project an outer life that does not tell the truth about the inner life. Be careful, because it's very easy to slip into this trap. Now, Jesus is not forbidding us to do anything righteous in front of other people. I mean, some people have taken this to an extreme and, you know, they have a private booth or someplace where you can put in your offering because they don't want to see the offering plate being passed around. Uh, Whenever they do anything righteous, they wear a disguise or something. We don't have to go to that length. The problem, in fact, look at Matthew 5.16. Jesus himself earlier in this sermon said these words, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In one part of the sermon, Jesus is saying, let your light shine. Do your good deeds in such a way that everyone can see them so that they will give glory to God the Father. But then in this passage, he's saying, be careful when you're tempted to do your deeds of righteousness in order to be seen. What is it? Is this a contradiction? Is this something where Jesus is talking out of both sides of his mouth? And the answer is simply no. He, what he's addressing in this verse, 516, is those people who are very shy about being seen because they don't want to be boastful, but really what's going on in their lives is an expression of God at work in them. And what he's addressing in this passage we read this morning are those people who are too quick to let the world see what they're doing and are not paying enough attention to the inner life. The Scottish theologian A.B. Bruce, I think, summarized it really interestingly when he said it this way. Show when you're tempted to hide and hide when you're tempted to show. Because when you're tempted to hide, sometimes it's God who wants to get the glory from you. And so we show ourselves to the world. But when you're tempted to show too much, then the counsel is to hide. Now, I don't want to just gloss over the giving to the needy part because it is an important part of the sermon, but I don't want to dwell there. I do need to say a word about it, though. It's interesting that Jesus says, when you give to the needy, not if. Through all of the history of the church, it has been presumed that the Christians who follow Jesus will always be the first responders to the needs of other people in our world. 
that when we see somebody who needs help, those who follow Jesus, it's been presumed we would be first in line to be those ready to meet that need. That hasn't always been the case in our experience. We know that. But that's always been the presumption from Jesus is that in this world, there will always be trouble. You will always have the poor among you. There will always be devastating storms and other things that will happen. But if you follow Jesus, his presumption has always been that you will never be numb to the needs of other people. I think that's a hard thing to think about because if we're, if we're really honest, most of us are in, at best weighed down by the needs of others. At worst, we're annoyed by the needs of others. Isn't that a member of your extended family who's always in some kind of trouble, always come around going, ah, listen, I hate to bother you again, but I, you know, this bad thing just keeps happening. I got another ticket. I don't know. It just, it's like the cops are after me. And you just want to say, why are you always in need? Seriously. Why, why are you always doing this? Why are you always? And so we have this issue, but Jesus says it's hard to live with an open hand towards the needs of others, but he presumes that that is how we will live. Not if you give, but when. And this is going beyond the offerings and tithes that people were giving. The presumption was that if we follow Jesus, there will be another portion of our earnings that is intentionally set aside so that when we find somebody who has a need, we have something to draw from to help. And I didn't realize this until much later in my Christian life, that I'm supposed to set aside some of my money, not just for my needs and my family's needs, but so that I'm able to help when my heart is moved to help. And I, would, I remember as a young Christian being frustrated over and over because I would meet somebody who had a real need. I'm like, oh, I wish I could help you, but I just can't. And I kept saying those words. And I'm like, something's wrong with me. I'm so moved to help, and I never, I'm always too broke to do it. And a Christian leader in my church said, did you ever think about budgeting to leave a little room to help others? In fact, Jesus did it himself. It says in the Gospels that Jesus and his disciples had a sack of gold that they walked around with coins, and with it they bought their own groceries, but they also gave lots of it to the poor. And I think that's a good practice to be challenged by as Christians. When you bring home your paycheck, do you immediately allocate all of that money to your family's needs? I think it's a good challenge for us to receive from Jesus to set aside a portion of our earnings, to be ready to rise up and stand with others when they have needs. And it's not just money, though it's the easiest thing to see, but sometimes what we have to be willing to give, to spend for others, is our reputation, our power, our voice, our time, our attention. How much of the things that you consider yours are set aside with the express purpose of making them available to other people. The act of giving to someone to help them produces tension in us. And I think one of the great illustrations of that tension is the tip jar at the local coffee shop. I don't always, I'm ashamed to say, but I don't always tip my baristas at Starbucks. Okay? I go there all the time. I'd be broke if I tipped every single time. I'm a cheapskate. But every now and then, someone will really impress me with their cheer, with their 
good service. And I want to acknowledge and bless that person. I want to acknowledge and affirm so that they keep doing this and to let them know, I appreciated you today. I see you. So I want to put a tip in the jar, but, and this happens actually quite a few times. Just as I'm putting the tip in the jar, they turn around to go pour another. I'm like, doggone it. And sometimes money's already dropped in. I'm like, what should I? And, and I'm thinking, my, and here's how bad I am. Should I reach back and get it and wait for them to turn around? But with my luck, just as I'm reaching in, they turn around and be like, sir, you can't steal. I know that would happen to me. And I realize that that's a good illustration of the tension I feel is primarily I want to bless another person. I want to encourage them. I want to put this money in their hands as an affirmation that what they did was good. I, I appreciate them. That's what I really want to do. But if I'm really honest, I also want them to see me doing it. It doesn't feel the same when I'm generous, but nobody's. It's like if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there here, it doesn't make a sound. I've heard from other pastor friends of mine. This hasn't happened to me at Harvest because we are an unbelievably godly church. But some of my other pastor friends have told me that sometimes a person will come with a really large check and say, Oh, pastor, you know, I forgot to give this an offering. Can you hand it to the treasurer? And they give it to the, the pastor, and then it's like, $10,000, holy smokes! And that's part of the design, isn't it? I, I can't just drop ten grand into the offering plate and see it just get mixed in with everybody else. I, got, I want you to know it was me. <laughs> pastor, I need you to know I'm here with you. I'm standing with you. None of you have ever done that, but I, I, I've heard about it, and I'm like, wow, that's such an interesting thing. See, the problem is not that other people see what we do. The problem with hypocrisy lies in doing it so that other people see what we do. We don't need to be invisible in every good deed we do, but we have to watch out when the whole point of doing it is to be seen doing it. In my ch- at my children's elementary school, they had this whole campaign called Caught, doing, Caught Being Good because they were too often realizing kids were always getting caught being bad Now they want to get caught being good. And it really did motivate them to do good in order to be seen doing good. But I think it also awoke something not so good in these kids. See, to be seen, that phrase in the Greek is a Greek word from which we derive the English word for theater. It's theaomai. It's interesting that to be seen is about being theatrical, about putting on a show. And the word hypocrite translates the Greek word hypocrites, which is an actor, a person who puts up a mask in order to portray a role to the world. This is not who I am, but for this moment, it's what you're going to see. I will become this for all of you to see. In other words, hypocrisy is rooted in this, playing to the crowd, playing a role, a performance. It's a show. It's, it's an illusion I cast on purpose so that what you see is what I want you to see, not what's really going on inside. I know people who are violently angry in their private lives. And as soon as they come to church, rah, 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 bless your heart. How are you, pastor? How are you? And wow. I saw you in the parking lot, man. I saw that vein throbbing in your neck. I saw how red your face was and you're walking all like, hello, pastor. And you're like, Wow. That's what it is. It's not being honest about what's going on. About projecting something intentionally so others see this 
out here and not this in here. Not all hypocrisy is rooted in a desire to deceive others, though. Sometimes hypocrisy is born out of having deceived ourselves. A blindness to the truth about what's really going on in here. And it's especially possible to fall into that kind of hypocrisy if everybody else is saying how great you are all the time. I think for children growing up in our world today, it's really hard to have an accurate self-view because everybody's praising you all the time. Oh, that was such a good shot. No, it wasn't. That was a terrible shot. I, why are you encouraging that? Because we, we just don't want them to ever hear anything negative. And so when you're fed all the time by the world around you, you're so special. You're every, and, and after a while, you start, you start developing a picture of you that is the direct result of what others are saying. And it discourages people today from looking long and hard at the mirror. Now, I'm not saying you should tell a kid, that was a terrible shot, you know, don't discourage children. But right now, that is not what we're in danger of at all, is discouraging children. What we're in danger of is not giving people an accurate self-view. Do you know the truth about what's really going on inside of you? I think as a spiritual leader, it's really hard because if church is going well, and if I'm well-regarded in my community, it's very easy for me to say, ah, that's job well done. Just play some Xbox and relax and not think about how I'm doing because everything outside of me is going pretty well, as far as I know. But what if the truth can only be seen when I really decide to look inward without rose-colored glasses? Henri Nouwen, I think you're supposed to pronounce it Henri, but I'm American, so I'll just call him Henry. Henry Nouwen is one of my favorite writers. And uh, he was, for a long time, a very well-known, acclaimed professor of theology at Notre Dame, at Yale, and at Harvard. So his pedigree was pretty solid. And at the height of his career as a professor, he began to have a period of dissonance inside that drove him to some reflection. And here's what he said about that period in his life. This is relevant for me because I'm right here right now in my life. As I entered into my 50s, I came face to face with the simple question, Did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus? I found myself praying poorly, living somewhat isolated from other people, and very much preoccupied with burning issues. I find it fascinating that the way he framed the question was not, how am I doing as far as I can see through my resume and through my public reception? But he said primarily, what would Jesus have to say? about where I am in my life. He framed this reflection in terms of where he stood with Jesus, not where he stood relative to the world. How am I doing with respect to Jesus? As he realized entering his 50s, that though he had gotten older, though he had studied harder, though he had come to know so much more about Jesus, In his inner life, he was drifting further and further away from Jesus himself and all that he stood for. And so in 1986, he made the very huge decision to leave academia altogether and move to Toronto to live and serve in a place called Large Daybreak Community 
a group home for people with the most severe physical and intellectual disabilities. It was anonymous, thankless work. An Ivy League professor spent all his days ministering to people who didn't even know what his name was, who were just this side of a vegetative state. And he finally found the heart of Jesus and his true self in that experience. He realized how hard it is to love when no one acknowledges you for the love you gave. How lonely it is to be forgotten by everyone you once knew. It's never been heard of again. To just quietly minister in a place where no one will remember your name. What I find so compelling about his testimony is that he didn't think about the difference he was making in the world or how grateful people would be, but he framed his life in terms of his response to the God of the universe. If there is a God, where do I stand with respect to this God? Is my life pleasing to him? Am I drawing closer to him? And as he processed his honest answer to that question, he made a huge, significant change in his life Because he realized that is what the Christian life is. It's a life of drawing closer to Christ. See, when a person is motivated by the applause of other people, what Jesus says is they'll get it most of the time, but that's all they will get. Paid in full. You will get the fleeting admiration of people who will see you for a moment and be impressed, and then in the next five seconds will forget you. That's just the way admiration is. I remember when Bruce Willis was an A-list actor. Do you see the movies he's in now? He'll go to anything. That be, just to put his, name, his face on the cover of the DVD, he'll, he'll act in anything. And I remember a time when everybody appreciated, admired, would be honored to have him on their movie. Now he's thankful when someone calls him back. That's the way of the world. It adores you for a second and throws you out like chewed gum that's lost its flavor. In a heartbeat, you are forgotten. And those who live for that find out the hard way how empty the applause of men really is. In the instant it's happening, it's like warm water being poured over you on a cold day. It feels so good. But on a cold day, once the warm water has passed over you, what's the next sensation within five seconds? You're wet and freezing. And that's the applause of men. When we live for that, we'll get it, and that's all we'll get. And what Jesus says is, if you live for that, you will get it, but you will receive no reward from your heavenly Father. In other words, when we content ourselves with the applause of other people, what we're forfeiting, what we're giving up, is the applause of God himself. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but when my knee was okay and I was still playing basketball, every once in a while, Jeannie would be there to watch while I was playing. Mostly she was there because Elijah was playing. She wanted to see Elijah playing, but I happened to be on the floor at the same time. She wouldn't just come to watch me, I think. And you know, after 22 years of marriage, it still amazes me how important it is for me to impress her. When she's there watching, I play a little extra hard. It's weird. 
And if I jump up, and I'm a small guy, but if I jump up and grab a monster rebound out of the hands of a bigger guy, the first thing I do is turn around. And everyone else is like, nice board, awesome, good job, good D. Everyone else is patting me on the back, but all I want to know is, did you, and half the time, here's what I see. She's on her phone just, I'm like, woman, come on. You got to look when I do the good stuff. Why? Because she's the one I love the most. She's the one whose affirmation and approval means the most to me. I crave it. And so even though everybody else is praising me, hers is the only approval I really want. A good second is when my son goes, Dad, that was a good play. That's like pretty awesome too because he's a good player. I'm like, uh, uh, you know. I taught you everything you know, right? (laughs) But it's interesting that when we really love someone, we find ourselves craving their approval. And this is what Jesus is talking about, is why would you content yourself with the empty and fleeting admiration of people who will forget you in the next five minutes and forfeit the admiration of the God who loves you more than anyone, whose applause, whose affirmation, whose encouragement over you will build up your heart in ways you cannot imagine? See, it feels good when others acknowledge us, but it's life-changing when God acknowledges us. That will do something in your soul that you cannot imagine. And I love that Jesus doesn't talk about the difference we're making when we give to the needy or the gratitude of the poor when we give them our help. He says those are parts of it. That's, that's good. It's important. But the primary thing that should motivate our giving to the needy is not a desire to make a difference. It's not altruism. It's not a desire to, be, to have people be grateful to us. It's because God lives. He's spoken, and I belong to him, and my whole life I want to be a response to the God who has revealed himself to me. That the greatest desire of my heart is not to make a difference, but to be pleasing to God. And we're forgetting that in the church today. It's become so much about the effect we have on one another that the church has really just become another human organization and the rescue for the church is not going to become, it's not going to come from when we want to make a greater difference in our world. It's going to come from when we want to make a greater difference in the heart of our God. When we desire God's approval and God's affirmation and his applause, it will change the whole way we live so that what happens in us will be truly, truly authentic. I'm going to close the message this way. Twice in this passage, Jesus refers to the reward that our Heavenly Father will give us. And the reward is simply this. In the same way that when we do good in front of the world, they often are impressed and they cheer us. The reward that God, our Heavenly Father, gives is the same. He will say to us, I saw that. I see you. And I'm delighted that you're my kid. He will cheer you on. That's huge. See, a lot of people I know grew up hearing that a lot from their parents. But I come from a generation where so many people Long to hear that, especially from their father, and never got it. That's some of us in this room. 
longed for the affirming words of a father and never got them, either because for one reason or another our father was absent in our lives, or because our fathers were physically there but refused to acknowledge the good they saw in us. And if that's how you experienced life, you know that that's not an emptiness that ever goes away. It leaves an open wound. Jesus can fill it. But the need for a father's approval is huge. It's inbuilt in us. God designed that need for himself. And even if your earthly father could not or would not give you his affirmation, the good news Jesus brings us today is that our heavenly father is not like that at all. He doesn't disappear. He doesn't withhold. He doesn't run away. He may not rush to you every time you ask for him because sometimes he's teaching you to walk to him. But our Heavenly Father delights in us. And when no one else is watching, even when we serve and do righteous things in secret, one set of eyes are always on us. There's one who never misses a thing. He sees. Every time you befriend that lonely kid in school who everyone else avoids and it's going to destroy your reputation to be sitting in the cafeteria with that kid. And you're not going to end up in the yearbook as humanitarian of the year. No one else will see. But you know who sees? Is your heavenly father. Everything no one else notices, he sees. And each time he sees that righteousness in us, he says, I see you. I'm proud of you. I'm so glad you're my kid. That father wound is a deep wound. And if you wait for your earthly father to give it, it may very well never come. But the good news of the gospel is that you also have a heavenly father. And Jesus Christ has opened up the way for us to have a relationship with our heavenly father. And our heavenly father delights in us when we live for him. Nothing is missed. Nothing escapes his notice. And when we stop living for an audience of many and we begin to live for an audience of one something beautiful will change in us we will stop playing to the cameras we will stop putting on a show and what the world sees is the same as what God sees it's the same as what we see we become authentic we become real and I think if God's church will be filled with people like that. I believe we will change the world for him. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.